Welcome to the Natural Curiosity Project. I'm Steve Shepard. Thank you for spending a few minutes with me. You know, I've always been curious. I don't know why, I just know that I am. I'm a writer and a teacher and a storyteller, and my job is to be curious, to ask questions and to share the answers. This program explores my belief that why, that simple three-letter question, is the most powerful question that any human has ever asked. Every time we ask it, we challenge ignorance and the status quo. This, I believe. Curiosity leads to discovery. Discovery leads to knowledge. Knowledge leads to insight. And insight leads to understanding. Something that, let's face it, seems to be in short supply these days. So thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoy the program. Leadership is something I talk about a lot because it fascinates me. It's also one of those things that can be hard to define. It reminds me of that now famous statement made by an older member of Congress back in the early 90s when the Internet was just emerging as a thing. Another thing that was emerging at the same time was online porn, and Congress was talking about ways to regulate it, to limit kids' access to it, and so on. At one point, the congressman I referred to earlier was asked to define porn, and after sputtering and hesitating for what seemed like forever, he finally said, well, I can't define it, I just know it when I see it. Well, good leadership falls into the same definition. I know good leadership when I see it. If you've listened to any of my recent episodes, you know that I define leadership as the art of being able to paint a picture of what could be, not what is, and then enroll other people to help the leader achieve it because they feel compelled to do so. They want to be part of it. But what is it that drives leaders in the first place? My friend Jim Winninger has the answer. Passion. Jim and I have known each other for a long time. We met in Southern California at a client we shared at the time, we're both musicians, photographers, and teachers. So not long ago, I sat down with Jim and asked him to talk about his passion for passion. So, Jim, we've known each other for a long time. And in a recent conversation, we started talking about something that we share in terms of sort of a philosophical approach. And that is the importance of passion in life, in work, kind of in everything that we engage, engage with. So we're going to talk about that in this episode, and I would like you, if you don't mind, tell us kind of in your own words, what is passion? If you were to look at, uh, take a, a step back in the olden days when we had these things called dictionaries, they were these big books with lots of words in them. And Webster was one of the uh, publishers of one of these things, and he probably had over a, a dozen definitions of what constitutes passion. Uh, but to me, it's really kind of a powerful, compelling emotion, a very strong feeling. How does it manifest itself? I mean, look, I've seen you in action. You're an extraordinary teacher. And I, and I mean that seriously. I mean, you're really good at what you do. And I have to say that some of that, some of what kind of overwhelms me when I see you teaching, I would call passion. But I think it's more than that. I mean, how would how does it manifest? How, what does it look like when somebody has it? Well, I think it kind of manifests itself through energy and enthusiasm. There's a uh, psychologist, and I'm going to do my best not to butcher his name. He, his name is Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. And uh, I did a little research on him. It, by the way, his last name is 16 letters long, only four of which are vowels. 
anyway, he, he authored a book called Flow. And he uses this to describe a state that you're in. And I would equate that state to somebody who's feeling a lot of passion. And I know that you have been here yourself because we've had so many conversations of different aspects of our lives where this happened. But you get so involved in doing something that nothing else seems to matter. And it's also you can equate it to doing something just for the sheer joy of doing it. I've listened to so many of your episodes earlier, and, and obviously you've captured some incredible sounds in just the woods, you know, just beyond your backyard. And, and I, I listened to that, and I could just close my eyes and envision you going out and just being so absorbed in these sounds and just your eyes closing, your head rolling back a little bit and just taking it all in. You're in the flow. It's, it's laser focus. So, for example, in 1992, NBA championships, Portland Trailblazers and um, the Chicago Bulls, Michael Jordan's playing. The Bulls are behind. It's coming in towards the fourth quarter. Phil Jackson calls a timeout, you know, the Zen master. And he says, guys, we got to step this up. And MJ comes back and he suddenly just has this intense, intense concentration. And in the 18 minutes that followed, he scores uh, six three-pointers. I mean, it was just all net, right? And at one point, the camera caught him, and he's just kind of running by the bench, and he's like, I don't know, you know. And they asked him afterwards, what was it? And he used the words, I was in the zone. That's passion, when you find yourself in the zone. Another way I might describe it, Steve, is a really deep feeling. And I want you to think of a book or a movie that truly moved you, that you felt either incredibly sad, incredibly elated, very uplifted, inspired, really heightened emotions. I'll give you an example. For me, it was uh, Mr. Holland's Opus. And for those of you that haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. But it's a story about a jazz musician that he can't make it as a jazz musician and have a family. So he sacrifices all of his life. He becomes a high school band director. And uh, we've all had him. And God bless every one of them. In the end, he thought, you know, my life never mattered. Turns out it did. And, and that, to me, is passion. That's a great example. And you know, you and I, as you pointed out earlier, we share a lot of common interests, one of which, of course, is photography. And I know that, you know, we've 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 been out together, not as often as we'd like, but I know that you share that same moment when you see something, you point the camera, you very quickly adjust whatever you need to adjust, and you click that shutter, and without even looking at the screen on the back of the camera, you go, oh, yeah. And you know, you just know that's a keeper. That's something that's going on the wall. Brasson uh, described that as the decisive moment. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, absolutely. And that's exactly, that's exactly what it is. So let me ask you this. How did you discover your passion, or maybe I should say passions, because I know that, like me, you have quite a few. For me, it's been sort of an evolving process. There are obviously things that I got very enthusiastic about when I was uh, in my high school years, for example. I love music. I'm a drummer. I will always be a drummer. And for my little corner of the universe, I was able to do a lot of music growing up. 
I'm looking at the wall behind you. I'm looking at all kinds of ways to make noise back there. I see gongs, drums, tom-toms, all kinds of things. Is that a didgeridoo? And keep that in mind because we're going to come back to that as a way to how to discover your own passion. Okay? And so for me, uh, I guess in terms of my career, it started this way. In, I was in 1967, an incoming freshman at the University of Iowa, and along with probably 80% of the incoming male population, I was a pre-medicine major. I had visions of grandeur, and I was going to save the world and make a whole boatload of money in the process. Well, it took about two semesters of chemistry to convince me my future was not in science. So I made the phone call to my dad. And I honestly don't think it came as any great shock to him, but I said, Dad, uh, I don't think I can make it into med school. C's on chemistry are probably not looked highly upon, so I'm going to change my major. Okay. He said, what do you want to do? I said, well, I've been looking around in my rhetoric classes, and people can't speak, and people can't write. I think I'll become an English teacher. Silence. Dead silence. And he says, we'll talk. Now, I grew up in Waterloo, Iowa, and I was going to school in Iowa City. And in about uh, 87 minutes, there's a knock on my door, and I open the door. It's my dad. And he said, we're going to dinner. And the sum and substance of his um, career counseling was, whereas teaching is a noble profession, you'll never make any money at it, get your butt in business school. I became an accountant because in those days you can't. Let me let me just stop. You. Are you sure we're not related? Because I remember that same conversation. Because <laughs> I because I was a Spanish major and I and I and I remember that exact that exact conversation. I suspect, and you may decide to concur since you are the expert at generations, but I think that was kind of a generational thing. I know my dad was influenced by the fact that he uh, he was. Uh, an independent businessman. He was a real estate broker and he always envied the guy that worked for the big corporation for 40 years and retired with a pension. And that's exactly what he told me I should do. Go work for the, you know, that sort of thing. So that started me on my wonderful career in um, accounting. And it didn't take me too long to realize that really wasn't my calling. 28 years is what it took me. Along the way, I was asked to teach an accounting class for a group of bankers. It was just an evening, you know, people that were tellers and bank loan officers and that sort of thing. And I fell in love with the teaching. And fast forward a few years from that, I moved to San Diego, California from Greeley, Colorado. And I was talking to my boss one day and I said, you know, I used to teach this accounting class uh, for the bankers. And I really kind of enjoyed that. I, I'd love to get into teaching somehow again. And so, oh, I know the dean at the community college. I'll set up an appointment. That then turned into 32 years of teaching business classes at a community college. And what I discovered for me, although I think accounting is a wonderful profession, my passion, my true enjoyment came not out of doing the debits and credits, but the teaching of the concepts to people. And interestingly enough, opening night of classes, 
I started, I can't even tell you how many years ago it was, I started adding one question to my uh, introductory remarks that everybody had to stand up and say who they were, because it took 20, 30 minutes of, of the first night class. And I'd say, you know, who are you? What do you do? Why are you here? Why are you taking this class? And my final question is, what are you truly passionate about in life? And if I, I told them that if you told me that you're truly passionate about studying long hours and doing really well, I'm not going to buy it. But what amazed me was the response that I got from people. And it made me realize that there are a lot of passionless people out there. Because you could look and see in their eyes as they looked around, their eyes were darting to everybody else to see, oh, I hope he doesn't call on me first because I'm not sure how I'm going to answer. And then the first person that came up, well, I'm passionate about family. Oh, bing, 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 fail safe answer. I can go that way. But I've had people that said, I have no passions. And I just find that uh, sad. It is sad. That's really sad. And functionally, it's a, it's a really important missing piece, right? I mean, we've, we've all, I mean, you and I have been around long enough. We've worked with people that have no passion. You, you can see them. They're, they mark time, right? They're not really in, invested in anything. The walking dead. They're the walking dead. And it shows. It shows in their work output. It shows in the level of engagement. It shows in their loyalty. It probably shows in their home life. You know, I mean, it, it is sad. It, it's a it's a deficit. And I think that also winds up showing up as a, a Gallup poll that came out a number of years ago that said about 80 percent of the workforce is unhappy with what they do for a living. And you know what? Just to kind of go off script here a little bit, one of the interesting things I just recently learned as we're approaching what is, I hope, the the end of the zombie apocalypse here. I've been doing some work for some of my clients about the future of work, about what it looks like. And, you know, as we've been Zooming for the last year or so, just to turn a noun into a proper noun, into a phrase, uh, into a, uh, a verb, a lot of people now are starting to say, this ain't so bad, and I can actually be pretty functional. You know, and a lot of people are talking about how what the pandemic has caused is the virtualization of work. And I don't think that's so true. I think it's actually the virtualization of the workplace. Because we're still doing the same work. You're just doing it in a different place in a different way. And one of the interesting sort of factoids that has come up is, and I've seen this from several reliable sources, is the very high percentage of people who not only feel more loyal, but they feel more comfortable, more capable working at home as opposed to working in, or working remotely. A lot of people aren't at home necessarily, but they're working remotely. And they feel like they're doing a better job. And the results would agree. I, I, I think that's, I mean, it kind of ties into what you were saying. I think it's really an interesting phenomenon. Absolutely. You know, I don't, I don't know long term how much of the workplace will remain remote. I think a lot of it will. I think there have been some serious benefits that have accrued. And I mean, here, look, here, you and I right now, you're in Florida, I'm in Vermont. And by the way, it's snowing here today. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Well, it is, it is April 1st after all. I, guess I, have to, I, I have to give it that. But, but here we are on a Zoom call and we're, I'm, you know, we're looking at each other and it's, you know, it's not perfect, but it's fine. It's fine. The audio is great, you know, and, and, and I think that companies are starting to realize that the human side of things matters. It matters a lot and it probably contributes a great deal to quality, you know. Is there a way to 
develop passion? I mean, what prevents people from having it? And this is kind of an opinion question. I think that there are a lot of people that think that passion is something evil. Or they think passion equates to something sexual. And therefore, we can't talk about it. I think that some people get so wrapped up in their day-to-day lives just trying to survive, they think there's no room for passion. And my opinion is that passion lies within all of us. And it's just a matter of allowing it to release. If you were to walk into a kindergarten or a first grade class and you ask the kids there, how many of you are artists? I'm going to guess every hand goes up, right? Oh, and they love to draw. They love to do this. If you go into a sixth grade classroom and ask that same question, maybe about half of them go up. And if you were to go into a high school or even late middle school classroom, maybe one or two hands will go up. And because, ooh, that's not cool. And I think it's especially true of creativity and the creative arts. Well, you know, that's what Ken Robinson has always said, that, you know, one of the great failings of American education especially is that, as he put it, we educate children out of their creative capacity, that all children are born artists. The secret or the challenge is to remain an artist as you get older. Exactly. Exactly. So um, getting back to your question, I think that, that passion is very, very natural. I think it's uh, very dynamic. It's not limiting. This is this is exemplified by the, the podcast series that you have. It opens new horizons through curiosity. It's not an addiction unless you abandon everything else. Then it becomes an obsession. And passion does not equal talent. You don't have to have talent to be passionate about something. I can be very passionate about baseball, but I'll never be the starting third baseman for the San Diego Padres. But I can be passionate in my pursuit of, of uh, baseball or whatever it happens to be. It's sort of like the, the use of the term amateur, which has become a pejorative term in many cases, right? I mean, I mean, in our world, for example, nobody wants to be an amateur photographer. Everybody wants to be a professional photographer. But they forget that the word amateur, well, they don't forget, they don't know. The word amateur means a lover of the craft or a lover of the skill or art. It doesn't mean that you're a duffer. You know, I mean, I think every professional photographer, until they lose it, is also an amateur photographer because they love what they do. I mean, that's the reason they're doing it. That That is. And uh, the very first photographer who ever mentored me uh, was a newspaper photographer. And if you asked him what his hobby was, he'd say photography. And he had what he did for the newspaper. And then he had what he did for himself in terms of a fine art photographer. He got just as enthusiastic about that, if not more so, than he did about the, the gig that he had with the newspaper. You know, if you go to my website on the home page, there's a, a basically a welcome letter. Thanks for dropping by. And in it, I quote a friend of mine who said to me, basically what he said to me was, I hate you because <laughs> you're one of those people who has figured out a way to turn his hobbies into a way to make a living. And he's right. I mean, you know, I do podcasts, I do photography, I do video, I write. I mean, I speak, I travel. Those are the things that I'm passionate about. I love every single one of them. And I have figured out a way to somehow craft together or cobble together this this very weird kind of a job. But I love it. And I will also go so far as to say that 
each one of those elements makes me better at all the other elements. I mean, as I develop one craft, I find that it actually influences in a good way my ability to do another one. You know, I think that's kind of interesting. Some time ago, you and I had a conversation and I made the the comment about how as I get older, I start to see everything in life as connected. And I couldn't really articulate what that meant, although I had the sense that you knew where I was coming from on that. But that's that's a great illustration of connection is there's no such thing as as experience that isn't beneficial in one way or another. It may not be a fun experience, but your experience in photography has made you better at, you know, other aspects of your life. And you see the world differently. You hear the world differently now because you're so attuned to that. I'm in the middle of a book right now about the development of the brain. And it talks about when you lose uh, senses, say, for example, you lost your sight, that part of the brain that controls vision then rewires itself to start becoming more attuned to sound, as an example, or some other aspect. And that, that validates that theory that we've always heard about how somebody that loses one sense enhances their other senses. And it's actually true. Yeah, you know, it's funny. When I started doing sound recording and I, and I was deliberately teaching myself to be more aware of ambient sound and wildlife and birds and all that kind of thing, I read a quote that I absolutely loved, and it kind of drives me every day. It was from from uh, one of the one of the big wildlife sound people, a sound ecologist named Bernie Krause, who who once said, "I like radio better than television because the pictures are better." And I thought, what an amazing comment, right? I mean, that because the pictures are up here in your head as opposed to being presented to you on a screen in front of you. And, and you know, I've, I've always tied that into something you and I both share, which is a passion for storytelling as well, right? I mean, you know, don't tell them, show them, right? And you do that through painting a picture with words that they can see in their own head. I just, I think that's so powerful. Really, really, really interesting. So let me ask you this. You, I know that in, in other conversations, you and I have talked about what you call the power of passion. What does that mean? Well, passion allows you to do a number of things. Uh, one of the things it does is it really kind of helps you reframe your attitude. I'll give you a quick example. Uh, try not to get into too much of the weeds here. I had a student when I was working for uh, a utility company, and she would come through some of my leadership development classes and I heard from other people that she was a real hard person to get along with. She had a bad attitude. Everything was negative. She was in a book review session I held one time, and I, I think we were talking about um, who moved my cheese when that was popular. And she just went on a diatribe about how stupid the book was, and her sixth grader you know, thought it was stupid and all of this. So one day after class, I asked her and said, if you're so miserable here at work, why are you here? She said, it's because I get four weeks of vacation. And I asked her, I said, so you'd rather be miserable 48 weeks out of the year, along with everybody who is around you, so you can get your four weeks of vacation? She didn't think about that exactly. Not too long after that, I ran into her supervisor. And she said, I don't know what it was that happened to Lynn, but she is a different woman these days. And suddenly she's pleasant and she's nice to be around and all of this. And I'm not taking any credit for this whatsoever. But she found Mary Kay, Mary Kay Cosmetics. And she found passion in that selling. 
she found uh, a way that work now became a means to an end. It allowed her to develop this. And she had her vision of, I'm going to be a district director and all of this stuff. So that's part of the, the, the power that this has. It can help define your purpose. For years, I taught a class called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. We all search for meaning in this life. What's our purpose? Why are we here in the first place? Is it possible to lose passion? Yes, it is. And I think that there are some warning signs. We talked about one of them already with sadness and anger. You, you see people that are just unhappy, getting back to that 80, 80 plus percent of people not liking their jobs. There's a sense of longing. There's a sense of, boy, there's just something missing in my life and I don't know what it is. People wind up having self-doubt as a result of that. Uh, they just dread getting up in the morning, feel out of control. And what I call blame storming. And that's where I'm going to blame somebody else for everything that's wrong in my life. So imagine that you're a leader of a corporation. Doesn't matter size, industry doesn't make any difference. But you know, you're, you're the leader, which means you're kind of the, you're kind of the spiritual advisor to the organization. You set the direction, the standards, the visions, all that stuff. What do you do to kindle passion in your people? I think one of the best examples that I've come across recently is a book by Bob Chapman called Everybody Matters. And what Bob Chapman does in his leadership is he has a philosophy that says everybody is somebody's precious child. And when you treat everybody with dignity, he talks about a poverty of respect in this country. I love that analogy. But when you treat somebody like you'd want your own child treated, when you treat them with dignity and respect, and when you help them see what they do matters. I'll give you another example of that. Uh, you know that I work with Kaiser Permanente, which is a very large health organization, and we have, when I was with them, 48 hospitals across the country. And one day, one of the executives is walking down the hallway of a hospital, and he looks in, and there's what we called an environmental services worker cleaning the room. And this was not what you would consider the usual union worker in terms of how hard he was working. And he was busting hop trying to get this room turned over so the next patient could be rolled in. The executive was really quite impressed. And he, he stopped the guy and talked to him for a second. He says, tell me, what are you doing? He says, I'm fighting infection. He wasn't cleaning a room. He wasn't emptying trash. He was keeping it safe for somebody else. What he did mattered. And as a leader, I think we have to provide a line of sight between here's what you're doing and here's how it impacts the company. This is how it impacts our client or our customer. This is how it impacts society. You know what that reminds me of is Disney's, Disney Corporation's mission statement is make people happy. And what I love about that and what I believe to be the genius in that statement is I don't care if your job is to, you know, operate the Alice in Wonderland ride or dress up like Goofy in one of the parks or cook hot dogs or pick up trash or, you know, run a mainframe in one of the data centers. No, no, no. Your job is to make people happy. How you do that within the confines of your business responsibilities is up to you. So it's almost a form of empowerment, isn't it? Mm -hmm. But helping people see that their work has meaning is really one of the primary responsibilities of any leader. And it ties into 
just people too, because I'll give you another example. You mentioned Mary Kay a little while ago. If you go back and look at, at her history, you know, Pink Cadillac, she was once asked, what is the secret to your success? Because look, I mean, let's be really honest here. You sell good cosmetics. They're not great, but they're good. And, and that's fine. But why have you been so extraordinarily successful? And she said something that I have never forgotten. She said, the secret to my success is that I pretend that whenever I'm talking to someone, anyone at all, doesn't matter who it is, I pretend they have a sign around their neck that says, make me feel important. I love that. I mean, that, and that ties right into what you're talking about. Make somebody feel like they matter. As Ken Blanchard, catch, catch them doing something right. So, Jim, let me ask you this. What gets in the way of passion? I subscribe to the theory that there are four basic fears that we as human beings have. We are, have the fear of failure. We have the fear of being wrong. We have the fear of being rejected. And we have a fear of emotional discomfort. And all of those can kind of come into play that say, well, maybe I shouldn't kind of go down this path. There's self-doubt. There's paralysis. We talked about people having a numb feeling before. There's a limited scope. I'm too old for this. I'm too young for this. I am not the right skin color. I am not the right ethnicity. We put this upon ourselves to say, oh, I can't be that. Now, is it likely that a five foot uh, six person, a young man, is going to make it to the NBA? No. But should that deter him from being passionate about basketball? Absolutely not. There's procrastination. I uh, had an experience early in my accounting career. I was doing an audit of a bean company. Yes, a bean company. I was the quintessential bean counter. And there was a kind of a... I would say middle-aged gentleman there that was working and his name was Don. And Don was asking me, cause I had just passed the CPA exam, which is kind of a big deal in an accountant's life. And he said, you know, I was going to become a CA myself one day, but I uh, just never quite got to it. Classic procrastination. And then there's, there's just the fear of, of being cautionary or there is being cautionary, I should say. And, the problem with that is I may not know failure, but I will never know success. What would you tell people that feel like they don't have a passion? How do they start? How do they find one? Your life's a product of your choices, not your circumstances. Each of us has uh, kind of a unique set of passions. One of the things that I used to recommend to people when I was doing the Seven Habits course trying to find meaning, is write your obituary for when you die at 105 years old. And you've done everything in your life that you wanted to accomplish. How would you have lived your life? How do you want to be remembered? What recurring words would you like to hear in the tributes that people wrote about you and, and spoke about you? What would be your epitaph? This becomes the basis for a personal mission statement which then kind of gives you a yardstick against which you can measure everything you're choosing to do in your life to make sure what I'm doing is consistent with my purpose. Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project. 
where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.